TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions about the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who is right up there with the sidekicks and supporting characters we are celebrating on this episode in honor of his birthday. My co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on the following with Andy and Nico, then Castle, Intelligence, the two-part Sleepy Hollow season finale, Supernatural, Psych, and Revolution, plus our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, New Girl, Modern Family, and Community. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts Thoughts on Justified, Enlisted, Grimm, and the premiere of the new Star's pirate drama, Black Sails, and maybe even a few more things. But before we get into all of that, we have this section that always reminds me, on a weekly <laughs> basis with the work he puts into it, that the sidekick is just as important as the hero, if not more so. News with Nico! Marina Baccarin cast as Talia in The Son of Batman. Batman turns 75 this year, and he's celebrating by becoming a father. The upcoming animated movie, Son of Batman, introduces Damien, the child Bruce Wayne never knew he had. The story is based on a 2006 comic book art written by Grant Morrison in which Batman learns that he has a violent, unruly preteen son secretly raised by the terrorist group The League of Assassins. The voice cast features Jason O'Mara as Batman slash Bruce Wayne, Stuart Allen as Damien, Marina Bac- Karen as Talia, Damien's mother, Giancarlo Esposito as Ra's al Ghul, leader of the League of Assassins, and one of Batman's most notorious enemies. Also, David McCollum as butler Alfred Prennyworth, Xander Berkeley as Kirk Langstrom, aka Batman, and Thomas Gibson plays the master assassin Deathstroke. Son of Batman comes out late this spring on DVD, Blu-ray, and for digital download. This movie will have its world premiere at WonderCon over Easter weekend in Anaheim, California. God, isn't it great to see Jack Carlo Esposito play a good villain yeah. with this. Yeah, absolutely. It's great for him. It's going to be exciting to see him as the, this role. I think he's going to be a lot of fun. Full House cast to reunite during the Super Bowl. John Stamos will get a little help promoting Danon Greek yogurt during the Super Bowl. The cast of Full House, or at least Dave Coulier and Bob Saget, have reunited for an ad alongside their former co-star. Danon released a sneak peek of the commercial on Tuesday, featuring the three grown men still living together after all these years. This should be a fun ad for next week's Super Bowl. Yeah, this is going to be one of the big ones. The other one I'm looking forward to is whatever they're going to do with Schwarzenegger and Big Pong. Yeah, Bud Light has been hitting it hard with these previews to the Super Bowl commercial. I don't think that's ever been done in the history of television that an advertisement promotes a future advertisement. Well, there's a first for everything. Crazy. Law & Order alum Jesse L. Martin joins CW's Flash Pilot. Jesse L. Martin has joined the cast of the CW's Flash Pilot, according to TVGuide.com. The Law & Order alum will play Detective West, an honest blue-collar cop who is a surrogate father to Barry Allen, played by Grant Gustin. 
West is the father of Barry's eventual wife in the comics, Iris West. This is the role that we previously reported that Ernie Hudson had been considered for earlier in the pilot process. This is not a bad casting, though I personally would have preferred Hudson as Detective West. He might have been too expensive. I think he might also have been too old. That's also possible. Yeah. Depending on what they wanted him to do. And, yeah. Exactly. That, that's a good point. More Flash casting news. New casting for The Flash hints at Professor Zoom and Killer Frost. Flash may have found its arch nemesis. It seems that the casting process for CW's Flash spinoff is well underway now. In the same week that Jesse L. Martin was announced as Detective West in the previous News with Nico story, two new cast members have been announced. Deadline reports that the Vampire Diaries' Rick Costnett and Necessary Roughness Danielle Pennebaker, who I'm a huge fan of, are joining the show's cast. Costnett will play Eddie Thaw, a detective recently transferred to Central City who carries a dark, mysterious secret. Pennebaker is Caitlin Snow, a genius bioengineer who lost her fiancé to an explosion at Star Labs. Notably, both of these characters are ultimately villains for the DC comic book universe. Caitlin Snow is the name of the New 52's incarnation of the supervillain Killer Frost, while Eddie Thawne sounds a lot like Eobard Thawne, the man who becomes Professor Zoom, a.k.a. the Reverse Flash. These are good additions to the show that looks more and more promising with each bit of news. Now, not to confuse everybody, but there's also a Flash villain named Zoom who was a Central City detective. Right. So they're combining two characters together. Right. Yeah, so just they avoid any confusion on that. They're putting them together, and I think that's a good idea to avoid confusion. Eddie is a much easier name to pronounce than Emmethard. Oh, good call there, too. Fox Rewards enlisted with time slot promotion. Fox is moving the well-reviewed rookie comedy into the Friday at 9-8 Central perch immediately following Bones, the network confirmed Tuesday. The show will effectively swap time slots with Raising Hope, which will now follow enlisted at the 9.30-8.30 Central time slot. The change took effect this week, and Enlisted has been drawing modest ratings since its debut earlier this month, but Fox has reason to be hopeful. The show saw its premiere demo rating jump 86% from 0.7 to 1.3 once DVR numbers were factored in. Good news for a show I've become a fast fan of early on. And I really, this show really owes its success to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, though. Well, I think it's it's holding its own on its own in, in a different genre, but absolutely, the, the success of Brooklyn Nine-Nine is evident that this kind of new genre comedy is ripe for taking over. Kind of there's Jeff Stoltz. Yeah, of course. <laughs> a lot of people like. I, I, I like him in... I, I love The Finder. I, I thought right. that was a great show. I, I thought it just didn't... I don't think it talked to enough people or got right. you know enough people interested. I, I thought it was a great show. I think it was the time <laughs> slot, and I think maybe they should have not tried to connect it to modes. Yeah, you know, it probably could have handled itself on its own. Yeah. Bill Cosby returning to NBC for new family comedy. The network is developing a half-hour comedy featuring Cosby as the patriarch of a multi-generational family. According to Deadline, which first reported the news, Cosby is once again partnering with producer Tom Werner, who produced The Cosby Show. They would like to see a married couple that acts like they love each other, warts and all, children who respect the parenting, and the comedy of people who make mistakes. Warmth and forgiveness, Cosby said about his plans to develop a sitcom in November. I would give this a try just based on Bill Cosby being attached. Yeah, Bill Cosby was a lot of my childhood. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm going to give this a shot. And I think it's a good move. I just hope he doesn't end up like Michael J. Fox, where they're trying to scramble to get viewers. But I think his name might hold a little bit more weight, to be honest. Maybe. Maybe. Again, I thought Michael J. Fox's name held weight, and that's not worked out. Yeah. We'll see. 
NBC's Murder, She Wrote reboot is dead. NBC has put its Murder, She Wrote reboot starring Octavia Spencer on ice. I think I speak for at least a few people when I say, thank God. Because, let's be real, there is no Murder, She Wrote without Angela Lansbury, and the project was ridiculous from the start. The network isn't ruling out the possibility of continuing with this project at a later date, but come on. It'd be pretty foolish to try and revive the series, especially after this attempt failed. Besides, there's probably no one even left in Cabot Cove at the rate people were dying anyway, so... Well, and after the Ironside disaster, I wouldn't try this. No. Ironside was terrible. I think they just cannot... They gotta get past this kind of stuff. Yeah, come out with new stuff. Be creative. Come up with new stuff. It can be similar stories, but it needs to be new characters, new ways of telling the story, and just really... Focus on the new stuff, because the reboot thing is over. That trend needs to stop. Well, I think they realized that with Blacklist being the success it was. Good. And maybe that new thing coming out, Crisis, with yeah. Jillian Anderson's going to work. I don't Let's know. Let's hope. Let's hope. Yeah. Girl Meets World is already picked up for a full season. Girl Meets World, the spin-off sequel to Boy Meets World, starring Rowan Blanchard as the offspring of Cory and Tabanga, has been picked up for a full season, earning an additional eight-episode order for a total of 21 ahead of its series premiere. I am way more excited than a 30-year-old man should be about this series. But hey, Boy Meets World was amazing and a huge part of my childhood, so sue me. There, of course, are some concerns. If the series tanks, it risks tarnishing the legacy of what was a defining series for many children and teens growing up in the 90s. This early full season order quells some of my fears a bit, but it's still a game of wait and see. And because there's still no premiere date, we may be still waiting for quite a long time. But the good thing is the original people involved behind the scenes on the show are a part of this as well. Right. The executive producer and showrunner is the same showrunner from the original series. So that should help. And I think this is a big thing for Disney Channel. I think it's going to get a lot of their respectability back. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this. It looks great. We know we're going to get a ton of cameos in the first episode and really kick things off strong. And it's already picked up that back eight for a total of 21. I think this is really good sign that this is going to be a good show. Well, and we'll get at least a couple seasons out of it. Because I really think they need to wash their hands of Miley Cyrus. Because so this is a big way for them to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, get back to the quality we expected out of Disney, especially when we were kids. Yeah, for sure. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right. With that, I'm going to take over for a moment and bring in Andy. Because yes. we're going to talk about the following with the season two premiere entitled Resurrection. A quick editor's note here. As you'll hear, we had some internet issues while recording this episode, so please bear with us as the audio goes in and out and sort of has a little digitization problems while Andy and I were recording. Thanks for your understanding. One year after Joe Carroll's death, Brian is trying to adjust to going back to his ordinary life. However, a new series of killing raises the question of whether Joe is actually dead or if his legacy has lived on. I've got to say this was a great return for the following this week with this episode, Resurrection. The recap in the beginning that led directly into new material on how Ryan Hardy survived, smashed the nurse neighbor's head before ultimately snapping her neck like a twig, and then not wholly unexpectedly telling us that Claire died in that final scene last season because Natalie Z is TV's most popular and well-used actress with major arcs or series regular status on Justified, Under the Dome, and the following all in the last year. Follow that up with a very classic Carolite attack and murder spree on the subway. I thought this episode did a fantastic job of getting us caught up on the last year and getting us right into the action this year. Andy, do you agree that this episode caught us up and set the stage for what to expect this season? 
I think it really did. It's, I'm going to be completely honest here. I stayed away from all spoilers and images and descriptions, so I didn't, I didn't even see the preview that they had released uh, a few weeks ago, because this is a show that I really want to be so surprised as much as possible, because it's a genre that I'm not that familiar with. It's, you know, what, it's actually one of the few shows that I watch that is in this genre, so I kind of want to be as surprised as possible. So I didn't know anything, and I, I, I'm actually kind of glad I didn't. Uh, I agree, the recap was really good, and I've been wondering for a long time, is Claire going to survive, and what's her role going to be in this season, but like you said, she is a very used actress right now, and I'm, you know, I'm sad to see her go, but I'm sure she won't have problem finding work. Yeah, but it was a great catch, you know, going back to why we were left after, and yeah, it, of course, just as the following is, it was violent, it was brutal, it was... And it was dark, and it was, of course, it was bloody. Yeah. Something I love about the first season of this show was the constant speculation of who was a hidden cult member, and already this season I have a few new speculations on that matter. In fact, how many people suspected that Hardy's niece's new boyfriend, the pastry chef, was a cult member? I did, like right off the bat. Also, at least one of his students from the crime scene profiling class has got to be a Carolite as well. It just has to be. I also like that this new Cult Cell 3 is completely unknown to Cult Cell 1's only remaining member, Emma, and her band of Mary Carolites, probably made up of Cult Cell 2 or Cult Cell Home members that escaped the escapades of the Season 1 finale, and maybe a few new members that she was able to recruit in the year since Season 1 ended. I also suspect that this new Cult Cell 3 is going to be great for new material this season. Those Joe Carroll masks were amazing, even better than the Poe masks of last season. Also, the scene where Luke or Mark, I'm not going to be able to tell them apart since they are both played by Sam Underwood, was dancing and conversing with the dead girl after having strangled her was just the kind of crazy that I love out of a Carolite. The twin thing only added to the creepiness. Andy, what do you make of the Luke and Mark characters that make up Cult Cell 3? Who are some of the hidden cult members that you suspected? And do you like the idea that in Joe Carroll's absence, the cult cells are not entirely aware of each other and the possibilities of story that that could provide? People are going to part of me, I'm I'm not kidding what, what I'm about to say, but Luke and Mark are, are kind of hot. You know, they, they need serious help, but I was kind of like, what the hell is going on? Uh, because what I thought when, when it was Luke and Mark was uh, lying in bed with that girl, I thought, you know, because we didn't see her face, but we only saw the back. I was like, oh, this is, you know, decent after sex. I don't know. I have no idea. And then she's like, oh, crap, he's dead. And then he was just playing around with her body, moving. I'm like, oh, good lord. I was just like, where's my stress ball? I need it right now. It was kind of disturbing, but Sam Underwood, he's kind of hot. I haven't seen Sam Underwood in anything before, so I actually thought they were twins, but, you know, they were two actors who were twins, but, hey, you know, they've done, you know, Army Hammer could do it in Social Network, so he can do it as well. The thing is with Hidden Cold Member is that I, it's, I can't trust a lot of people on the show, like, in the show. I, I, as soon as I see a new friend, I'm like, oh, crap, is it a cold member? It's like, you know, because I can't trust them. I, I think you're right, you got, I think, I think they're at least two or three students that are cult members in in Hardy's class. I didn't see him being a teacher, though. That was kind of a surprise. But I wouldn't even be surprised if some members have actually invaded the FBI and the CIA and so on. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. Absolutely. Or they were recruited out of those organizations. They were already in the organization. Yeah. But at the moment, I don't have any specific... Like, you know, I don't have names. I don't know I don't know what specific person I'm speaking right now. But I, I was actually thinking for a while could Hardy's 
knees be one of them. But it's just like, you know, we, we can't take away every near person he has in his life. So I don't, I don't know. I hope she's not. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I definitely do not want to see. I want her to be on his side. I don't think she will make it through the entire season. I think she's, you know, prime bait for someone that the cult goes after to get to Ryan Hardy. But maybe they'll surprise us and maybe she'll be one of the ones that survives season two. I absolutely love the Ryan Hardy Batcave and the idea that he's running his own secret hunt for Joe Carroll task force with his niece Max Hardy. I like the addition of this character played by Jessica Stroop, but the addition of this new character gave the season 2 premiere a bit of a series reboot feel. I mean, she's playing the kind of clumsily inserted character who's somehow always been integral to Ryan's story and yet had never before been mentioned or referenced. Given that Resurrection takes place a year later and that most everything and every with a few exceptions from season one were disposed of ashes at the altar of Ryan's ultra pyrrhic victory over Joe that's the way the show had to play it they needed to add new characters change some of the ones that survived Ryan Hardy included with his new healthy lifestyle five month sobriety and ability to run without having a pseudo heart attack I'm not sure what the wake up call was for him but we were treated to one flashback involving Mike calling upon him finding him drunk no less in order to talk about their upcoming testimonies regarding regarding Ryan's straight-up murder of the cultist in the woods. So whatever it was that actually made Ryan shape up, it wasn't Claire's death, and it wasn't presented here. But I like that he and Mike are still struggling to find their way after Agent Parker's murder. I'm glad they didn't just gloss over all the losses that Hardy and the team sustained in chasing Carol last season. Andy, what did you think of the Hardy Batcave, the unauthorized secret task force, and the introduction and rebooting of some of the characters that survived for season two? I'm going to get called the, the Hardy Cave or the Bacon Cave. I like it. It was I actually didn't see that coming at all. Like, you know, because he was so convinced that, you know, I'm done with this. Here's the thing about knees. I, I see what you mean. That it kind of feels like a reboot or a retcon or something like that. But if you think about it, during season one, he was always in constant danger. He couldn't. He, doesn't, he didn't know who he could trust. So why would he... Bring Bring up some of his personal fa- family members after what he saw ha- happen to his sister, for example, in the second episode, I believe it was. So he had, I do think it made quite a lot of sense that, you know, that they could, in, you know, put insert this character, even though we never heard about her. Because why would he mention it? Because otherwise, you know, somebody in the FBI or in the Ryan's circle could be actually a cult member and perhaps would have gone after her. I don't know. But what this show does is flashback. So maybe we actually see what happened in this last year. Maybe he met up, you know, maybe came closer to her and yeah. maybe there will be an explanation that can actually be satisfying in the end so it makes more sense. You're absolutely right the use of flashbacks in this series is one of the things that we just absolutely loved in season one. Now, yeah. I've got to say the posing of Heather Clark, the victim reading Joe's book was amazing I loved how it seemed like a Joe Carroll murder and was reminiscent of some of the murders by Carolites last season trying to impress Carol. Andy what did you think of this staging of the victim? Was it a Carolite trying to impress Joe Carroll and get him to come out of hiding or are we supposed to suspect that it was Carol himself? What are your thoughts? That's a good question. I'm not. I'm not really sure, to be honest. Perhaps, maybe. I don't know. I'm actually going to have to pass on this question because I'm not really sure at this point. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to make a decision yet. I sort of felt both ways. I felt that it could have been Cult Cell Three 
could have been Luke or Mark doing a Carol-like killing. It could be some unknown Carolite from Occult Self 4, let's say, or some rogue guy trying to join or try to become a Carolite. It could be a copycat, or it could be Joe Carroll doing his thing, or it could be something completely different that I can't even think of, you know? There's a lot of options here. Absolutely. Well, Resurrection was a promising return for the following, especially the way it played with our expectations regarding Ryan's mindset after Claire's death. It was a double swerve as we were first hit with he wants out and then surprised with he never left. Furthermore, there wasn't anything too unbelievable here. Well, at least from a following standpoint. All right. Well, anyway, join Andy and I next week for another discussion on the return of the following. It's going to be a good season. Thanks, Andy, for joining me again this season to discuss the following, especially this week with this excellent episode to kick off the second season. Now, Dan will take over as we discuss this week's episode of Castle. Yes. And Andy, you are also one of the supporting characters we are celebrating this week as well. So thanks for coming in and helping us with the following. Okay, with that, we're going to move into a Castle episode where one of the supporting characters got to play a pretty big role in the mystery. So let's talk about the Castle episode, Glimelight. Castle and Beckett investigate the murder of a rising pop diva. As they look into her out-of-control partying lifestyle, a shocking eye-opener endangers their investigation. Even if you didn't care for the topic of a mystery about a pop star, or thought it felt like an after-school special, I believe Castle's writers deserve credit for trying to give us something different with such a large part of this week's episode, focusing on Alexis, kind the pop star investigating kind the murder of her lookalike. God, do you agree on that, Liko? Did you like how they mixed it up? Yeah, Dan, I liked that Alexis was incorporated into the mystery this week in a believable way, and that it led to the end of her relationship with Pi, yeah. without needing to have Castle tell her, I told you so. So, I enjoyed the use of the Miley Cyrus character to bring Alexis into the story and help both of them resolve their issues along a similar path. Yeah, and this episode really should have been titled The End of Pi. I think that would have been a fun parody. <laughs> I think so, yeah. You know, it would have worked. Uh, thank God that guy's gone. That's all I have to say. Or instead of The Life of Pi, The Death of Pi, or <laughs> something like that. That's the title of Castle's next book. Right, <laughs> that would be hilarious. All right, so uh, Nico, God, you felt that many of my ideas with bringing Alexis in kind of mystery had been far-fetched. Was that the case regarding the pop star lookalike? Or did this work in the same capacity as Alexis being in the pre-law class? Yeah, Dan, as I, I sort of said, this was believable and made all the sense in the world. I think they should strive to include her in cases by doing things like this more frequently, or as I've suggested before, having her be a sounding board at home where she helps Castle and Beckett see things from another fresh perspective, much like Castle did early on in the series. So I think that they can get her involved in the story, they can get her involved in the mysteries, but it needs to be in a believable way, and these are two ways that that can be done, where she's not involved in the actual investigation, but maybe as a side story that leads into the thing, like it did into the, the investigation this week, or as that sounding board at home. So something really simple by them accidentally picking up the wrong phone works really well for doing this. Yeah, right. as long as she's not consistently being put in danger, or it's right. always the same way where she becomes involved with the victim, or she becomes involved with the murder, maybe, in one case, uh, unbeknownst, because it's so early in the investigation. Right. You know, I, I think 
that can only work so many times. So they need to find a way that it works where one time they're at home and they're discussing the case and she overhears and she says, what about this? And they're like, no, 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 no. And then they start looking at each other and they're like, really? That that could be right. And, and then it turns out to be right. And they're like, okay, we got to tap into this. And then Alexis is all weirded out about their whole <laughs> back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. But it works. And really, they didn't need to do this, but I liked how in the team up that Alexis had with the pop star, she kind of acted as the straight arrow, almost like Beckett in the investigation, kind of knowing what to do to stay out of trouble and trying to keep them having a plan. Kind of the pop star acted as Castle with her knowledge of the celebrity scene. And I really thought that was a good contrast between the two girls that seemed to work. Did you pick up on that too, Nico? Yeah, I agree, Dan. I thought that was a, a very good way of showing the two stories kind of parallel or using the known tendencies of our two main characters to show them in the pop star and Alexis's team up this week. I thought that was a good way and a good interpretation of it on your part. And to keep the side story interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. But the nice thing about this episode is they kind of built an insurance policy for themselves. And the fact that if you didn't care about the Alexis story, the episode wasn't considered an entire loss. Because there was plenty of the usual investigating at the precinct for us to sink our teeth into. With the kind of initial confusion between the pop star, kind of her lookalike being murdered, sucking us right into the mystery. Kind of the outcome of the murder being somewhat of a tragic surprise twist. Which stemmed from the real-life media, kind of even our own opinion, telling us to put their the blame for their out-of-control partying lifestyle on kind of the pop star's own personal decisions. Rather than realizing there might be someone else making them appear that way. Nico, what was your thought of the mystery? Because did it feel different than the pop star cases they've done at Castle in the past? Because we know they've done a lot. Because we were kind of getting tired of them last season. Yeah, I think it worked better this week. Because I liked this week's mystery. And it was well played all episode to keep us invested in who killed the lookalike. And whether it was her who was the intended target or just a tragic mistake. I actually really liked that it turned out that she was the intended target and not a mistake. And that made the reveal that it was the mother slash manager that more dastardly in the end. Yeah, and with all that going down, I really liked how the writers kept Castle as a major part of the episode. With him using his own experience, guys not as popular as a celebrity, to help the pop star deal with her issues. I really thought that was a great moment there. And how that turned back around to Castle's own personal life, where TMZ kind of met its kryptonite with Beckett quelling all the rumors that Castle was getting back together with his ex-wife by putting her wedding announcement in the paper. I thought that was good that Beckett knows how to deal with this issue. Kind of just nips it in the butt. Got all that tied together into everything that was going on. There were a lot of side story things going on, but all of it felt necessary for the story and the mystery they were telling. So, Nico, you know, in recent seasons, Castle sometimes tended to forget the celebrity status, you know, for storytelling for the most part, which is fine. But were you glad to see kind of a reminder of the more glamorous side of Castle's life? Take the limelight in this episode with his media issues? Yeah, I thought it was fun to add that aspect to this episode, and it has been a while since they made any real mention of his celebrity status. Yeah. But that tends to be the case in real life when you know someone, their notoriety tends to be less impressive and you're less starch struck with that person. So it makes sense that the guys and us, the audience, would be less concerned with his celebrity status and think of him as just one of the guys right. as we go through every case. So I like the idea that this time it finally reared its ugly head, you know, because it was a negative yeah. aspect of, of the celebrity status. So I, I thought it was pretty good. And thank you for just mentioning the ex-wife, not yeah. bringing her into the story. Absolutely. I mean, that's smart. And finally, I was just really glad we got to throw the trash notice pie out the window and we're done with him. 
because I'm assuming that based on the conversation you had with Castle, at the end, Alexis is going to break up with Pi off camera. Also, uh, I think the moment where Castle discovers Pi is out of the picture won't be in an I told you so, like Alexis thinks it's going. But I'm hoping it's going to be this time where maybe both Castle and Beckett sit down with Alexis to make her realize they can be a family together. Nico, do you think this type of scene is coming soon, or will be the focus of a future episode? Get his pie done. We're not going to see a wrap-up next week. Yeah, I think Pi is gone, and thank goodness. Yes. I was never a fan of him, like we, we were supposed to not be, but I felt like this was a mistake that Alexis sort of needed to make, and I'm glad they had her handle it on her own, Yeah. but I was never really a fan of the story arc anyway. I'm not sure that they will need to have a sit-down to explain they can all be a family. Rather, I just think that Alexis will have to move back in, and it will be handled that way. So yeah. Alexis will be like, I need a place to stay. Castle will be like, just move back in. It's fine. And she's like, well, what about you and Beckett? And Beckett will say, this is your home. You're yeah. always welcome to live here. And that'll be all they need to do to handle it. I think that's going to be I, how they do it. I just kind of want to see an episode where it's Alexis and Beckett together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Beckett saying something to Alexis that says, he is always going to be your dad. And we're going to be a family is, is, is a fine way to do it. Yeah. And I think we'll get something like that. Like what I said, I think they're going to do a wedding fitting, you know, a dress yeah. selection and fitting episode. It's going to be her, Lainey, and Alexis. And I think that that'll make for a, a good opportunity for the girls to bond. Right. I, I just think that'd be a nice moment because they, they there's not been a lot between them. I mean, there's been a few things here and there in between, but it would just be nice to see that because it's different. Right. You know, it, it, it did wonders for Supernatural's episode this week, and we'll get into that where they did different pairings. I think yep. Alexis and Beckett would be something different um, for us to see. Yeah, I agree. Because you can't get enough of that when you're in season six. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that covers Castle. A good episode. I mean, it's a standard run-of-the-mill thing, but not horrible. And I think the show is moving pretty smoothly right now yeah. in this second half of the season compared to last year. Glad you had that great 100th episode that it kind of fizzled. And I think this season seems to be much more in gear right now. So that's that's good stuff. So with that, we're going to move into a show that's gone fire and I think went out strong for the season. And I can't wait for it to come back next year. I hope this hype stays there when it comes back next year. Let's talk now about the Sleepy Hell episode. Indispensable Man had bad blood where the sidekick character we thought would be the ever loyal sidekick had surprised us pretty good come with a huge twist. So let's talk about that now. While Captain Irving faces the ultimate test of his loyalty, Ichabod and Abby find a secret passage within Washington's Bible that reveals the truth about the first president's death. The two worlds collide as Sleepy Hollow is wrapped to its core in the final battle between good and evil. Yes, yeah, so just so everyone knows, this is a two-hour finale, so we're going to cover both episodes of that finale. Got uh, This two-hour CPL event did a great job of capturing everything that made what looked like a ridiculous story from the trailers at the beginning of the season into the best new show of fall 2013. With its backstory-driven monsters, national treasure-like mysteries, dark humor, crazy plot twists, and culture shock jokes stem from this rendition of Ichabod Crane, being a revolutionary war soldier who ripped Van Winkle his way into modern times. Nico, do you think this season finale success stemmed from it being almost the greatest hits album of all the reasons why we've become so invested in this new show? Yeah, Dan, I do. I think this episode did what we have been praising about this show all season perfectly. Its ability to take its own ridiculous premise and run with it by tying that ridiculousness with humor 
and bringing those together to tell an amazing story that acknowledges its premises absurdity. The mixture of humor and action all season has been the highlight of this amazing series and made it more than just an absurd telling of the Sleepy Hollow myth. Yeah, and speaking of this Greatest Hits album, Nico, I know one of your favorite tracks is Andy Brooks, who we call Dead Show. Because I've got to ask, did you like what they did with his character in the first episode by turning him into demonic Cho and then ultimately killing him off? I think he survived being buried in Washington's tomb. But what do you think? Dan, I did like the progression of Dead Cho in the penultimate yeah. episode. I love his metamorphosis into demonic Cho and wish we could have seen him going toe-to-toe with our dynamic duo a little more before his apparent demise. But I, too, believe that he will have survived being buried in Washington's tomb. But I'm not entirely sure about that. It could go either way. I mean, he did survive getting stabbed through the brain. Not just in the brain, but all the way through the back of his skull. And just shook it off and kept coming. So who knows? He should be able to survive having a tomb dropped on him. Right? Yeah, he could survive that. Exactly. Everything else, the broken neck. And I love that they did that again. Yeah. Yeah, way too much fun. I really, at the same time, thought the concept of George Washington having a secret tomb was pretty awesome, kind of viable to the audience, because it really backed up with true facts about Washington. Plus, the tomb gave off the Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe, which made it worthy of any president, especially one as legendary as George Washington. Did you like the concept, Nico? I loved this part of the episode. I mean, the idea of a zombie George Washington was a little more of a stretch, but the idea of a Freemason-designed secret Raiders of the Lost Ark-style tomb for the final resting place of the father of our country made all the sense in the world, especially within the mythos of this show. Yeah. So, yeah, I absolutely love this part. I mean, I was excited. I was like, oh my god, this is crazy. Yeah, this show never ceases to amaze me with where it goes with history, but it's just a ton of fun. And of course, they had to go there with zombie Washington, you know. Somebody (laughs) had to say it. Right. But again, I like how they do zombies, it's not like a Walking Dead sort of thing, because you think of zombies. Right. It was more of a kind of coming back from the dead kind of thing, or try to give yourself a couple extra days to get your affairs. That's what I felt like it was. Exactly. Yeah. And last week I complained that Captain Irving's daughter getting possessed was going a little too far on the horror scale, but I get now why the writers did it, with Irving having to take the rap for the murders to protect his daughter. I thought this sacrifice brought the captain's story full circle for the season. It kind of made me compelled to see what happens to him next year next year, as I think he may discover how the American government have been preparing to fight the horsemen probably since the Revolutionary War. Because I think if our first couple presidents knew kind of about Moloch and the war against demons, then really why wouldn't others? Nico, did you like how they wrapped up Captain Irving's story? And what's your thoughts on how he's going to get out of taking the rap for the murders? Yeah, I'm not sure on either of those things, Dan. I was not a huge fan of him taking the rap on the murder charges because I hate when they put members yeah. of a team in pseudo-trouble. And now that he they have done that, I'm not sure how they'll fix it and get him out of this situation. Like I said, I'm not a fan of this trope, so I'm not a huge fan of this story turn. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like they needed to put him in some sort of cliffhanger. Uh, they didn't know what to do. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I just wish they had gone a different route. I think they just put more eggs in the whammy at the end. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And this might just be an opportunity for them to sit over the summer and say, okay, Irving's story seems like it's going nowhere. It's sort of at that end. What can we do to beef this up? So I think that's probably one of the things that's on the whiteboard to say we need to repair in the off season. They, they've got a lot of time to fix it, so... Hopefully it'll get better. Yeah, I think they've got it. I think they've probably got something in mind yeah. on what they're going to do. And we'll just be, when it comes back and we figure out what's going on, we'll be like, why were we even concerned? <laughs> yeah, this show does that, doesn't it? 
It does. It very, very much so. It, it's the master of making us think one thing and then just ridiculously going another way. Oh, did you recognize the FBI agent that was questioning him? Yeah, I, I recognize him, but I don't know the actor's name. That was the yeah. That was the guy from Person of Interest. Right. Yeah. He yeah. was working with Carter. Yeah, that was kind of funny too. Yeah. See. Yeah. Good. Going back to the episode, as for the debate over finding Washington's map, the purgatory being something that would help Abby and Crane against Moloch, or being exactly what the bad guys wanted. I actually kind of saw it going either way. And this was kind of stemmed from my concern for the Robert Parrish Sun Eater character, played by John Noble. I just felt in several scenes he was going to die or something bad was going to happen. Because I just wasn't sold on him being a reoccurring character because he is such a big name now. I knew he would finish off the season, but I just didn't know if they could hang on to him. And so I was just panicked the whole time that he was going to go down. And, and this was maybe because he was such a fond reminder of the Dr. Bishop character from Fringe that we've you know praised up and down on this podcast. So I was f- fearful for his life. And I thought that him getting killed might have caused the prophecy to come true. Again, that obviously didn't happen, but that concern for Robert Parrish, planted in my mind by this episode, certainly caught me hook, line, and sinker for what was going to come. But before we get into all of that, Nico, did you also have the debate where you couldn't decide if finding the map would help Abby and Ichabod or lead them into a trap? Also, do you think Abby going ahead and burning the map against Ichabod's wishes could have been another scenario that caused the falling out between them? Dan, I wasn't really thinking about Robert Parrish dying in the season finale like you were. I just wasn't thinking that far ahead with regard to John Noble and whether he'd be back next season or not. Now, the way that things went down, I'd say he will be back yes. at least as much as he was this season, if not more. Now, if Ichabod had not burned the map and Abby had gone and done it behind his back or without his leave, then absolutely that would have caused a major rift in their relationship. She would have taken the decision out of Ichabod's hands and would have prevented him from saving Katrina. Yeah, that would have caused issues. I really thought it was going to go there for a little bit. Yeah, I, I was glad that they went one way. Uh, yeah. I'm glad the way the, they went the way they did and sure. not, not this other way. Well, because it's, it's exciting and it's thrilling but it's also satisfying to the audience the way they went. And to make a long story short on my explanation, I was so emotionally invested in everything. They really caught me, got through me for a loop for what happened at the end. They, they totally blindsided me, and that's hard to do when I've seen so much TV. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So they, they got me with the emotions and just outstanding stuff. And with the next episode... I was really glad to see the writers take that one last opportunity to capitalize on their culture shock jokes with Ichabod wandering his way into the Revolutionary War reenactment. Nico, do you think the writers took advantage of their last chance to have fun with this show by putting Ichabod in that situation? Yeah, and really, what a great way to poke fun at the entire premise by having him stumble across a Revolutionary War reenactment. This is great stuff from the writers, capitalizing on that humor to progress the story once again, which is why I love this show. Got to kind of give us a breather in between episodes so it wasn't so intense. Um, yeah, exactly. And I really felt playing the two episodes together, they gelled really well into each other, even though I think they were intended to be shown one at a time. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to just comment on that exactly. They were intended to be separate episodes, and they still worked very well as a, a whole night event. Yeah. That, that takes some really good writing to do that. 
Oh, yeah, and this, this is some of the best we've got on TV. Kurtzman and Lord C are awesome at what they do. They really are. Good terms of movies and TV. And, uh, Nico, do you think Emmy got over Ichabod memorizing? Got drawing out his own copy of the map too quickly? After he promised her it was gone forever? I felt that Abby just had to let it go because there were more pressing matters at hand with the Horseman War going to rise. You know, it's not as if he didn't tell her he had a photographic <laughs> memory. So, in a sense, she should yes. have been aware of the possibility. So, no, I don't. I didn't think she got over it too quickly because, as you mentioned, there were much more pressing matters to be concerned with anyway. And maybe if things were a little less chaotic, then it would have been an issue. But she just didn't have time to be concerned with it. They had to go get Katrina because that was the only way to stop wars rising. Right, exactly. Or at least they, or so they thought. Right. Because I thought the conversation Abby had with Jenny before traveling to Purgatory was really well written. It kind of put that final nail in the coffin. Kind of all the issues we had with the sisters squabbling early on in the season. However, once we got into Purgatory, I began to get a little bit disappointed that the finale was turning into a road not traveled episode for Ichabod and Abby, but when the episode went in this direction, my interest was still really held afloat, thanks to the presence of veteran actors that are kind of in the J.J. Uh, Abrams universe, such as John Cho, Classy Brown as the sheriff, got Victor Garber from Alias, because Ichabod's father. Nico, what do you think of what may be the final conversation between Gabby and Jenny? Did you enjoy the presence of veteran actors in the purgatory scenes? Dan, you're correct about the conversation between Jenny and Abby being a great way to completely alleviate our issues we initially had with these sisters and their squabbling. We know this is not going to be, or I at least know that this is not going to be the last conversation between these sisters because both characters are too important to the series and the story. But at least at this point, it was a memorable goodbye just in case. Yeah. As for the presence of great veteran actors in this episode, I thought it was masterfully done and really added to the feeling of longing that each character had when arriving in Purgatory. I thought it was good stuff from these actors that we love to see, especially yes. Clancy Brown. I just, I love that guy. I yeah. really wish he was in this series more and hadn't been, you know, brutally beheaded in the uh, pirate. Yeah. I, I, I want to see him on another series, but at the same time, I want him available for flashbacks and scenes like this in this series. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, get, that sheriff character is very, very good. Good. As it turned out, with the road less travel only being a theme for predict for particular scenes instead of the entire story, this episode went into the crazy cliffhanger insanity we've come to expect for a season finale for a show, beginning with Abby having to stay in purgatory in place of Katrina. This was a twist I think we both saw coming, Nico. Yeah. But what happened afterward left me completely blindsided because Robert Parrish was revealed to be the horseman and Ichabod's long-lost son, Jeremy. Holy crap. God, really? I'm just going to stop talking now because I'm dying to hear someone else's thoughts on this plot twist and if they were caught off guard as much as I was. So take it away, Nico. Yeah, Dan, I was completely blindsided by this turn of events as well. I was not expecting anything like this from one of our favorite sci-fi actors, but it was so brilliantly done that I can't help but root for John Noble to be an amazing villain next season. This was such a great story and plot yeah. twist that will lead to some great plot points in season two. This was is and is going to be amazing. I, I, I just yeah. was flabbergasted by it. It was like, oh my god, that's so awesome. Yeah, I know. I can't believe you guys got me that good. Well, and it was. They they played our love for Fridge against us. Exactly. Come there like, oh, people love him on this show. We're going to do this. And it's like, oh my god. And I bet John Noble had a blast doing this scene, too. 
knowing what was coming and how it's going to be such a twist. Right. Well, he got to play Walter in the first half of the season and Walter in it in yeah. the second in the, that finale. So I think he's going to enjoy being the villain again in the second season. I, I'm kind of hoping they did it in a way that they didn't tell the actors that he was going to be the son until they had that scene. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. That, that would have been cool if they did. I don't know if they did. But this is going to be a great conflict for Ichabod, who's already a great character. And to see him deal with this, because that, that episode where he dealt with what happened to his son was quite powerful. Yeah. And so now that he's going to have to face him, that's going to be very interesting. And also, there's two more horsemen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This could turn into like a who's the Cylon kind of thing, which would be interesting. Yeah, definitely. But I think the the next two have not risen. Okay. Uh, that, I'm, I mean, that's a huge assumption, but that is the assumption I am going with. Or someone becomes them. Yeah, that is true. That they could be resurrected into another person. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Okay, as for speculation about next season, we're going to go into that a little bit because it's so far away. I'm kind of predicting that Abby will escape purgatory thanks to a combination of the sheriff, played by Clancy Brown, and Jenny, who I think got sent to purgatory after her run in with the Headless Horse. And then... Once escaping, Abby and probably the newly cleared captain will dig up the buried Ichabod. And the search will begin for Katrina. Nico, what's your predictions for the next season of Sleepy Hollow? And do you think it will maintain its success when returning in the fall? I do think that Sleepy Hollow Season yeah. 2 will be able to maintain the success that we saw in Season 1 and become one of the best shows of the year. I like your theory that Jenny will get will help get Abby out of Purgatory, and maybe some of the others, like Clancy Brown's Sheriff character, will help as well. Then the Captain, Abby, and Jenny will resurrect Crane once again, and they will get the team back together to fight and stop the next horseman from returning and try to defeat Moloch ultimately. I really, I can't wait till this show returns next season, next fall. I know. I, I'm just counting down the days, you know? Can, like, can that be just a mid-season finale, please? Oh, uh, it's so good. Yeah. But I think the reason it was so good is because it was 13 episodes. Could have there to progress room, every week. Yeah, there wasn't room for any slowdown, any sort of filler episodes. It all had to hit hard. Got it. I think Fox was genius to do this. Yeah, I think we're going to see more shows like this in the coming years. Well, Fox has got, they're going to bring back 24 in a 12-episode format. Yep. So that's going to help. The following's doing 15 again right. this season. They did 15 last season. This is doing 13. Yep. A lot of cable shows do 13, and I think that that model has become the new model of television. And I'm surprised they're not considering this for Almost Human. Well, Almost Human has its own issues with right episodes being shown out of order and all that, you know, crap that Fox pulls. But yeah. I actually think it's been working okay for Almost Human. I think Almost Human's going to be okay because I think police procedurals are a little more adept to the longer schedule, whereas these genre right. shows need to be more focused because you can't have any filler, otherwise you lose momentum. Because I, I think that's kind of what killed things like 24, got lost and stuff back in the day in later seasons was the filler episodes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Good, so this this is going to help them a lot. Good, so with that, we're going to move on to another show that I, I hope, I think is also on the 13-episode schedule. That is going to kind of maybe do some of the same type of thing that Sleepy Hollow does. Even though it's not really getting the success because the ratings it should, and I think it's just because it's on at the wrong time. But we'll talk anyway about what I thought was a good episode of Intelligence, entitled May Chen Returns.
Gabriel discovers that Mei Chen is still alive and that she can also hack his chip. This week's episode of Intelligence moved away from the war on terror get to a technological arms race because a female Edward Snowden-like character threatened to give China all the intel that there is on Gabriel. Nico, do you like how the writers have instituted credibility for this show to switch gears on a weekly basis, going from battling terrorists to dealing with more sci-fi technology-based conflicts? Yeah, sure, Dan. The show would get a little bit tedious if every week it was the same story and the same problems being solved. So this series being able to mix it up from week to week will allow them to tell more stories and keep us as the audience more excited and engaged in the week-to-week stories. This week's episode also did a lot to progress the overall story arc, so that was an added bonus to changing the format up this week as well. And I like how this episode was able to bridge its technological focus with last week's War on Terror by having Mei Chen's appearances start out as Gabriel thinking he was hearing his supposedly dead wife's voice in his head, kind of turning into another vulnerability for Gabriel's abilities, as it was revealed a person with another chip could easily manipulate his rendering and take control of his mind. Nico, what did you think of this vulnerability Gabriel had to overcome this week? Was it too out there for the realistic sci-fi you were expecting from the show? Kind of the actions Dr. Cassidy got his son performed to kick Mei Chen out of his head for good? Or was this some sort of a temporary fix? Dan, I think this was a permanent fix for keeping his chip secure, especially since they said it was going to be in the exposition when they were explaining the procedure to Lillian. So I do believe that these actions by Dr. Cassidy and his son Nelson were successful in kicking her out and keeping her out. As for the whole concept, I actually thought it was realistic. Well, okay. I mean, as realistic as having a microchip right. embedded in your brain and interfacing with your brain is really realistic. If a computer can be hacked, then a microchip in your brain c- could be hacked if you could find a vulnerability. Once that vulnerability is closed, then another vulnerability needs to be found to hack that computer again. So this may not be the last time his chip is going to be hacked, but it will be the last time for a long while. Also, if anyone was going to hack his chip, it would be the one person who also has has a chip and a more advanced one at that. So I was all right with the believability of this week's story arc. And I said that I think it's a permanent fix. It's a permanent fix for this vulnerability. There may be another vulnerability in a future system update or something like that where she could get back in, but I think they're going to steer clear of that for a while. Yeah, I agree with that. This this show, we have to remember, is it's a step farther than person of interest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's where we, we need to go and remember with things. Now, in this episode, it was revealed that Mei Chen doesn't necessarily work for a government, because her goal is to create an army of people, like herself and Gabriel. And that makes me wonder if the story we are watching unfold this season, with Gabriel being deployed as a super soldier to battle terrorists, is only a prelude to a much bigger story about an erupting race war between the people that have the cheese to allow technology to be implanted in their heads. What do you think of this somewhat crazy crackpot theory, Nico? It's certainly plausible within this story, but I hope that's not where this show goes. I'm just not interested in seeing that story play out on this show. I'm fine with Mei Chen trying to make an army of people with chips to combat Gabriel, but I don't want it to devolve into a, quote, race war or anything of that like. I would much rather it just be her against Gabriel or her being yeah. like fascinated with Gabriel and being like an arch nemesis trying to interrupt or, or go up against him. I don't want it to go larger scale where it's she's trying to turn people with this gene against humans or it becomes like a, a tomorrow, uh, tomorrow people. people. Exactly. So you just think that this should just be some grad 
grand gesture of a crazy person. Yeah, I, I don't want it to go too much further than her just yeah. trying to maybe make a few other soldiers to do whatever her mission is, you know, whatever she decides it wants to be. I don't okay. want it to be, you know, like a, a the start of the Terminators or anything. Right, because, I mean, this show really could skew off into that. It could very easily, careful. and I don't want it to go that way. I mean, and this is kind of, I would say, the next step up on the sci-fi when it comes to CBS, with with person of interest kind of being the the lighter one that's testing the waters kind of sci-fi. Okay. And this one seems a bit bit of a step further. Sure. And I don't know if that's working for the network or not. Yeah, it's always difficult to know how far you can go with sci-fi where you you won't lose the casual viewer or the person who's not a sci-fi fan. I will go very far down that sci-fi rabbit hole because I am a huge fan of science fiction. But I know a lot of people who aren't will only go a certain spot before they're like, ooh, I don't want to get sucked in. I'm pulling back. Right. So, and I think this show maybe should be placed closer to person of interest. Because maybe that would help it. There's always that possibility, and I, I don't think it's a bad bad decision. I like it on Monday nights, but if it's not doing if it's not doing well in the ratings, then yeah, m- let's make a move. Well, you're going, you're going up against blacklisted castle, right? But I, I, I don't know NCIS Los Angeles. Like I feel like you could put that anywhere. Yeah, they like the idea of having uh, NCIS lead into NCIS Los Angeles, though. Yeah. You could take that show or leave it. The original well, is great, but... The NCIS Los Angeles is surprisingly successful. Yeah, I don't know. Is it getting better? I don't know. It's pretty much the same. Okay. I watch it, but <laughs> like I said, I watch a lot of police procedurals. And, and that's why I think I think people watch it out of loyalty to NCIS. Well, I mean, you get sucked into the story and the yeah. characters, and you want to see where things are going, and if if this story will, if this arc will ever be paid off, and things like that. And and that's how you end up watching 10, 15 seasons of yeah. ER, even though it's awful yeah. in the last five to seven. Yeah. You know, it, right. so. I don't know. Well, with that, we're going to move on to some odds and ends about this episode of Intelligence. Even though it was weird seeing Lance Riddick, who played Royals on Fridge, as somewhat of an antagonist to Lillian, I'm hoping we will see him as a reoccurring character, because I just love the guy. I just enjoy it when he pops up the things, and I think he's a quality actor, so give us more of him. Get people excited. Could also, I've got to say, after listening to his voice acting on The Legend of Korra, and now watching him on this show, PJ Bird, because a lot of fun to watch as the comic relief supporting character. God, I, I loved his booyahs, cheers, and reactions when coming in, got awkward moments between Riley and Gabriel. However, with that being said, I can't count Dr. Cassidy out, because the interactions with his son are still great like they were last week. Because I like the contrast he has with Riley, and she has the tendency to look at Gabriel's abilities with emotions. Because Dr. Cassidy looks at them analytically. Nico, do you think this show, coming actors that we've enjoyed or recognized from other things, amps up the quality of the show? You know, I don't know if it amps up the quality of the show so much as makes it a ton of fun to watch because we are fans of these actors that we once loved on so many other shows. Legend of Korra, Lost, Once Upon a Time, Supernatural, Psych, ER, The Mentalist, Star Trek, Enterprise, Fringe, Castle, Bones, and... And many others. Those are all shows that these actors have been on. The fact that these main actors in this series have been in so many of our favorites over the years makes it fun to see them succeed again in a show we are loving 
so far. So I'm not sure that these actors amp up the quality necessarily, but it definitely makes it more fun for us to watch, especially when someone like Broyles shows up in an episode and I yell out, hey, it's Broyles. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think it's more that we're just having fun seeing these actors again in another show. And I mean, yeah, they're quality actors, but I don't know if it, if them just being a part of it brings the whole quality of the show up. I think that's done on its own with the the writing and the, the genre itself. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It makes it fun watching this show. And, and it makes it seem like they've got a good ear to the ground on the television industry and what people like. You know, I, I think they think of these actors because of these shows that they put on. And so they're enjoying having them a part of the show as much as we enjoy seeing them. So that's cool. Sure. Because I like these people getting work because I like what they do. So it makes me happy inside. And finally, as more of a writer's room question, because do you think intelligence might be moving a little fast? when it comes to leaving overarching story on the table. I mean, in just three episodes, we've already supposedly killed Gabriel's wife, set up an evil version of Gabriel, and had Gabriel flush her out of his hat. Most shows would take an entire season or a few episodes to cover each one of those issues. But Intelligence has knocked them out right at the get-go. Do you think this is a mistake, or are the writers going to be okay since things have been set up in a way where they could easily bring back the wife? or allow Mei Chen to get inside Gabriel's head again. Uh, no, I don't think they're in trouble of going so fast because I do think they have left enough mystery surrounding the wife's apparent death and her motives to continue to come back to that story over the rest of the season and maybe even beyond if they need to. As I said earlier, I think they have sealed Mei Chen out for a while and it will require her to figure out another vulnerability in Gabriel's chip before she could try to hack him again. But that being said, it is something that could happen later and she's always a threat in the physical world still. I think this show is moving fast, but I think it is leaving itself many opportunities to revisit some of the themes and some of the breadcrumbs they've left themselves in these early episodes to later expand into bigger themes and ideas. So I'm not worried about where this show is going or how fast they're going through some things because I think they are always also leaving themselves an opening. Okay. And also they're working with 13 episodes. I think it's 13 episodes, like Sleepy Hollow did. Yeah, I, I, I don't actually know for certain how many it's going to have. Okay, because I think what they wanted to set up was like hostages for half a season and intelligence for the other half. Okay, and hostages is definitely done, so... Because that kind of get renewed or did they cancel it? That is a great question I do not know the answer to. Oh, they might not know the answer to that yet. That is true. I think a decision has not been made. Yeah, that, that's probably smart. That'll be a May decision. Yeah, it may be a very late one, as you said. Yep. Go on, also, this show is up in the air as well. Right. So I, really ho- I really hope that this one does get pick up for another season. Yeah. Because I'm liking it, and I think it, it needs an opportunity to, to get going, you know? I agree, and I, and I think people might not be watching this on Monday because they or are there two other popular shows caught at the same time? Because I'm recording all three, so... Well, I can only record two, and I have to watch one, because of my DVR I can only record two. So, that might be an issue as well. True. So, we'll see. Just let's write it out and see what happens. But, uh, you know, in episode three, I think they're okay. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to talk about an episode of a show that actually began a two-night appearance of one of our favorite, I guess, supporting characters, sidekicks, or guest actors. So we'll talk about his first appearance here, and then his second one following this discussion. So let's talk about the Supernatural episode, First Board. (laughs) 
Crowley and a reluctant Dean go on a road trip to find the first blade, the only weapon that will kill their mutual enemy, Abaddon. Meanwhile, Castiel proposes to use Gadriel's remaining grace in Sam to track the angel, but warns that it could cause Sam permanent damage. With this week's Supernatural, I have to commend the writers kind of in the same way I did for Castle, with keeping things interesting by using John Winchester's journal and recent character developments could both Cass and Crowley for us to accept the Winchester brothers changing dance partners because Dean went off with Crowley and Sam stayed behind got the library to work with Cass. Nico, did the Winchesters teaming up with different characters work for you this week? Especially when we haven't seen Sam and Cass really work together before? Well, Dan, if you remember from last week's discussion, this team up with yes. Sam and Cass was exactly what I predicted. And it worked out just about as well as I could have predicted. Yeah, I thought was, about that when watching it. Yeah, it was fun to see them working together. And I liked the tension created because Cass thinks that Sam should call Dean in for some help. But Sam does not feel the need to do, nor does he want to do that. And Cass seems, at least for now to understand that and respect Sam's decision. Now, I did not really see the Dean and Crowley team up, but I'm so glad that it happened because it was more than I could have ever hoped for with Dean's story arc right now that he and Sam have parted ways. And for, at least, you know, they've parted ways for now. So this was so good. I, I was very happy with this week's episode. And it was really breakout episodes. Cass had excellent seeds. Crowley had excellent seeds. I know we kind of expect that from Mark A. Shepard, but Really, he's been extra great this season, I think. They're really giving him some good stuff. Yeah, this is some of the best stuff we've seen since his introduction of the character. And I think maybe even better than that introduction. So this is absolutely some of the best stuff we've seen from him. Yeah, uh, speaking of that, another great actor that we love. I really thought it was just ironic how Tim Oldmanson, who plays a character that thinks he's the father of law enforcement on Slake, was casted as Kane, the father of murder, here on Supernatural. I don't know if I would have bought the significance of Kane as a character. On this show, if, if he wasn't played by a recognizable actor, Ken Crowley wasn't afraid of him. Nico, what did you think of Timothy Olmanson's performances as Kane in this episode of Supernatural? Yeah, I thought Timothy Olmanson was brilliant as Kane this week and played the part perfectly. I also really liked the twist on the story of Cain and Abel this week on how Abel was going to make a deal with the devil and Cain stepped in to stop it and had to sell his soul to keep his brother from being damned. That was a great twist that made Timothy Olmanson's portrayal of Cain so tragic. Great stuff from a great guest star this week. Good Could stuff. It. And I also think it made him perfect for playing this role. Yeah. I think if he was the pure evil Cain that the Bible makes him out to be, that would have been not so fitting for him. But you really bought this story because of this actor choice and because it was him. Yeah, that's a great point, Dan. I, I think you're absolutely right. It, if it was straight evil, then he would have been the wrong actor. But because it had this tragic twist, he becomes the perfect actor to play this role. And it was great casting. Just absolutely great casting. That really, in a lot of times, we don't give enough emphasis on that, that the right actor can make the story. Because I, I don't know, there's something about Timothy Olmanson's eyes that makes him feel trusted. I can get behind that. I mean, it kind of sounds like a man crush thing. But but that's what it is. It's like you you look at him and you're like, okay, I can trust this guy. So that's why you bought the story he was telling about Kate, at least in my mind. Sure. And speaking of characters in this episode, it felt like the brothers were really motivated to make 
reckless decisions in this episode. Guys, almost a need to get out of the frustrations they developed towards each other at the end of last week's episode. Guys, luckily for Sam, Cass was able to bring him back to his senses with some PB&J got a hug. But with Dean, I didn't feel things worked out so well with Crowley sort of tricking Dean into giving himself the mark of Kate. Nico, did you like how each Winchester story played out? Got the directions they have been going for the rest of the season? You know, I'm not sure I like the direction Dean is going at the end of the episode, but it will be great storytelling. That is for sure. What I mean by this is that it's a great story arc for Dean, but it will be difficult to watch at times as Dean heads down the wrong path for the right reasons once again. I'm excited to see where it goes and anxious at the same time. On Sam's side of the story, however, I really enjoyed Cass telling Sam that he, of all people, understood the choices Sam had made in his life and that Cass knew how you could do the wrong thing for the right reason and he knew how that felt. This same speech may work well at the end of the season for Sam to give to Dean as well. I think this episode did a great job of setting the table for the rest of the season and clearly lay out the roads for each brother to walk, even if they're not necessarily the ones that we want to see them do. It's going to be good story regardless. Now, my question to this, and Michael brought this up when I was talking with him, are we going to see a reversal of season four and five? Uh, Where... Like Dean causes the apocalypse, or, or this Dean time, goes or, off or, the rails, and, and yeah, Sam. I I don't think it's gonna go that far. Okay, I think he's gonna start heading down that path. But I, I think we'll get to this in a moment when we talk about the Mark of Cain a little bit more. I do think in the process of of resolving that story, things will be reset back to a more traditional Sam and Dean story. Plus, I think there's a lot of characters that would step in and try to convince Dean. Pull him out of the darkness before he gets in too deep. Yeah, exactly. He's developed too many friends. Like, you know, we've got Charlie out there. We've got Cass. I mean, a bunch of people that are going to pull him out of the fire if it gets that bad. And, of course, Sam. I mean, Sam will ultimately be the one who does this. I mean, it has to be that way. But I think other characters will play a part as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Dan. Yeah. And also, I really have to give them credit for using Season 6 to justify a lot of the things Cass was saying. Yeah. And even flat out addressed it. I tricked and betrayed you guys. And so I, I'm really glad that they're acknowledging that it's existed, even though it was kind of bad, God, using it to fuel the story. That That's very good writing. God, and a great way for them to wrap things up, as I really believe next year is probably going to be it for Supernatural, but we'll see. Okay. And even though it's not what I believe in, I understand why the writers changed the story of Cain and Abel, with Cain killing his brother to protect him from Lucifer, to provide Dean with a cautionary story about where his current decisions are taking him. However, is being broken and alone like Cain, where Dean is destined to be now, now that he has his mark? Because right now, the show seems to be having Dean, who I believe to be the true hero of this story, going down a dark path, almost kind of in a season three fashion. And I don't know if I like this, one of my favorite characters on television. Nico, do you feel that they're going in a dark direction with Dean's character? How do you feel about it? Also, you got any crackpot theories about how Dean is going to rid himself of the mark of Cain? Well, basically, Dan, as I was starting to mention earlier, I'm not sure that I like the direction Dean is going because I do see it as a dark path. But I think it is going to be some great storytelling and a great arc for the character. I foresee Dean using the mark as he intends to hunt down and ultimately kill Abaddon. I do think that that is where it's going to go. Once this is completed, I believe Dean will hold true to his promise and use the mark to destroy Cain. Somehow in doing so, he will save his brother and destroy the mark of Cain in the process. I'm not really sure how this will work, but somehow the combination of saving Sam, thereby undoing the original sin that caused the mark of Cain, the killing of a brother, 
and killing the original Cain, the mark of Cain itself will be destroyed. That's my theory anyway. I, I don't know all, all the details on how that will work, but I do see that being a very plausible way for all of this to come together. Well, and Metatron's still running around out there too, so right. you gotta and, how and, to do that. And in the process, I think that that destruction of the mark of Cain will take Dean off that path of darkness that we're seeing him walk and kind of show that maybe he wasn't really being seduced into this darkness or following it blindly, that he had an idea of where he was going. Okay. I don't don't, don't know. I I like that idea because we understand it's going to be a dark path. And, you know, we both agree on that, that it's going to be really good storytelling. It's going to be a little dark. But ultimately, I think in the end, the good old Dean that we love will be triumphant. God, it may come out he has a master plan. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah I like that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think they're going to scare us a little bit, though. Uh, Yeah, they're going to have to a little bit. Yeah, but it, I think it'll going to work out. I just hope Abaddon doesn't like, call it start the beginning of another apocalypse. You've broke the 67th seal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because it's the apocalypse. Oh, no, no. No retreads. But I think Jeremy Carver's smarter than that. I don't think well, you know, do. he hasn't he hasn't let us down yet. Yeah. Well, I think that pretty much sums up Supernatural for this week. Are you ready to move on? I guess we're moving on to Psych now. Yeah. With Timothy Olmitson's other appearance on television this week. God, it was kind of a diminished role this week, God Psych, so maybe that was because he was got Supernatural. I don't know. But anyway, let's talk about the Psych episode. That was a first for television. Remake, a.k.a. Cloudy with a Chance of Improvement. Psych you out in the end. During Sandra Pinnich's trial, Gus and Sean investigate the murder she allegedly committed. This week, USA made a dream that all television writers have come true. Because they let Steve Franks get his company behind Psych remake the season one episode, Cloudy with a Chance of Murder. The night I didn't think was all that bad, but God, this was fun nonetheless. And if you remember back to 2006, Psych had figured it out with the mysteries of the dynamic between Sean and Gus. But the show had yet to find its comedic voice. Because a lot of the humor came from Sean's wacky over-the-top reactions to his fake psychic readings. Because the pop culture references we've come to expect from the show today were scarce. Because again, this isn't anything that writers should be faulted for. Because they were just playing it safe to get picked up for a second season. But now that Psych has established itself because one of USA's flagship shows, the kid gloves were taken off with the remake of this first season's episode, cutting in the pop culture jokes attributing to Psych's present-day success through settings from the original episode being switched to more outrageous locales, cut the guest stars getting replaced with more recognizable actors like Ray Wise, Alan Ruck, Ralph Baccio, Kajetta Varney, the voice of Cora on, well, The Legend of Cora, who played a hilarious parody of a female talk show host. Nico, did you feel that all of these changes made Sykes' remake of Cloudy with a Chance of Murder a success? Absolutely, Dan. This episode was much more akin to the episodes we've come to expect in the later seasons of this series, rife with pop culture references, many outdated back to yes. 26, or 2006, some current making it even funnier, and humorous gags that have become common to later episodes as well. I also love the constant reminder in text on the screen format that this episode was set in 2006. Yes, 2006. Oh, that was good stuff. And even had some 2006 music too. Yeah. Which is fun. Always, always. God, I can't believe how dated 2006 is now. Oh, it kind of blows your mind. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, it's like a, like a 2006 Razor phone, for example, in this episode. And that was one of my many favorite comedic moments from this episode, which also included the opening conversation ripping out remakes of movies. 
Woody's, or I think it was at least Woody's, mean-ass mustache. Sean and Gus interviewing a suspect at a extreme trampoline arena. Sean introducing Gus to Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Gus is Black Cameron. Can Gus using every famous monologue used in a courtroom movie to cause a distraction? Nico, what were some of your favorite comedic moments from this episode? Dan, I too love Sean introducing Gus as his Black Cameron to Alan Ruck. Gus's menagerie of monologues from every courtroom movie ever, especially when the bailiff asked him to identify his last one. I also really liked the introduction of Woody before he was the SBPD coroner. And Dan, you are correct that that mustache was pretty badass. But the thing I loved most about this episode was the use of 10, 11 if you count Kurt Fuller, returning guest stars in different roles this episode. Most notably... Michael Weston, Ralph Macchio, Alan Ruck, Janet Varney, and Ray Weiss. So many Easter eggs in this one that you'd have to watch it maybe ten times to even hope to catch them all. Good stuff. Well, and I think it's pretty hilarious that they have an actor named Michael Weston. Yeah. Starring on a USA show. That's the name of the lead character on Bird Notice. Exactly. It's hilarious. It's great stuff. But I'm curious if he's named after him. Like he's friends with somebody that works on Bird Notice. I don't know. that would be that would be hilarious. Yeah, it would be. It'd be kind of cool. And I think he actually guest starred on an episode of Bird Notice, believe it or not, which is kind of funny in itself. That is hilarious. But yeah, based on the comedic moments that we shared, the remake of Cloudy with a Chance of Murder was, in my opinion, much funnier than the original. But I thought the original episode had a much better story. Guys, what made me remember it was Sean helping a young lawyer could prove, thus earning him his own victory in the courtroom, kind of repairing his relationship with his dad. But the remake did away with all of this for more scenes of the television studio where the murder took place. Nico, do you think the writers purposely made the story not as good this time around to prove their joke about the original always being better than the remake? Or were they just more focused on having fun with the remake concept to really care about the story? I don't think the writers purposely did anything to make this episode worse than the original, but I do believe they focused more on the humor this time around and did not care or need to focus so much on the character development or story development so that much this time around. I would argue that this version was the better version in my opinion, but that is probably because I enjoy the humor, fun, pop culture references, and just off-the-wall nature of Psych more now than when it was more mystery and plot-based in the first season. That's just my opinion on the matter, but I really enjoyed this episode. This is a very interesting way of them to show how far they've come in a final season. Yeah, absolutely. Because they they made the genius decision to release the original Cloudy with a Chance of Murder on the internet that you could watch for free. So you had a frame of reference before watching the remake. Yeah, right. And that was was really helpful. Yes, yes. Just genius. And goes to show you how the internet can make you accomplish things on TV that weren't possible. Because I, I just don't know if many people would have rewatched it again. Or this would have worked without them being able to go online and watch the episode. Or there'd be Netflix where you could go back and watch the episode. Because that's what I did. Right. So that, that just media technology really helps with that kind of stuff. And so it was just a genius idea to try this and see if it worked, and I think it did. And moving forward, personally, I like the outcome of the mystery better in the remake compared to the original. Because I thought the secretary being the murderer was always too easy to predict. Got the male talk show host being the killer in the remake. I thought really paid off Janet Farley and Carlos Chacot's already great parody-based performances. Nico, did you like how the mystery's outcome was different in the remake compared to the original? Yeah, Dan, I agree it fit better, was more entertaining, and just felt more like the outcome you'd expect of a later episode of Psych than what we got in the first season with the original. As I've already said, I much prefer this outcome to the original, or at least okay. I preferred this episode to the original one. So yeah, I, I definitely felt like I, I 
preferred this outcome. Yeah, and another fun part of the episode that we really didn't get to touch on was it kind of played with thoughts that we had as audience members when going back to watch a first season episode eight years down the road. With Sean actually having real psychic readings telling Jules that they were going to be a couple. Got Henry showing up at the complete wrong times in this episode to have a warm and fuzzy moment with his son when they weren't getting along in the first season. Nico, were you amused at how the writers played with a rare opportunity? like a remake episode, by over-exaggerating the foreshadowing? Yeah, Dan, one thing that the writers had to deal with in making this remake episode is the comfort that the actors have with each other now compared to in season one. For example, in 2006, when season one was going on, Sean and Jules almost never flirted, and there was little foreshadowing of the relationship to come. Also, Maggie Lawson and James Roday were newly seeing each other off-screen and were hesitant to have that creep into the show at the time. When Maggie Lawson and James Roday interacted with each other in the original, there was a certain level of distance between those two, and definitely the characters as well. At that time, there was only one scene where Sean flirted with Juliet, and Roday and Lawson weren't out in public as a couple yet. You know, so the way they look at each other in their scenes in this remake, you can really tell how much things between them have really changed on and off the screen. So to combat these tendencies and to make the episode more enjoyable for those of us that know exactly where things are going, the writers took the prime opportunity to over-exaggerate the foreshadowing and make fun of the series in the process. I thought it was a brilliant move to kind of combat some of these issues that maybe would have made it otherwise a little less quality. Well, and I just love Fenry showing up in the, the studio, and he's like, oh, he must be lost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, such good stuff. Oh, I love this show. Well, he was taking two ways. It was like, oh, he's, he's getting older. He's got Alzheimer's now. Or it was... Oh, he's just in the wrong place in the episode. So I love that kind of dual meaning to some of their jokes as well. Great stuff. And finally, and this is just me having fun. God, you can shut me down if you want, Nico. But even though it was kind of nice that they brought back called the original actor who played the lawyer, Cornstock remained sane, some sort of continuity with the remake. I would have loved it if Ralph Macchio was brought in to play Hornstock and Billy Zapka played the DA. But I guess that would have been stealing a joke from How I Met Your Mother. So just for fun, Nico, were there any changes? between the original and the remake of Cloudy with a Chance of Murder, you wanted to see that Sykes writers might have missed? You know, I was pretty happy with the changes that they did make. I think the Billy Zapka versus Ralph Macchio would have been fun, but I'm actually glad that they had Michael Wesson come back as Hornstock. I just like the actor and the way he played the character, so I think I would have been disappointed. Well, maybe not. I, I mean, the, the Billy Zapka-Ralph Macchio thing would have probably overrided that, but I did enjoy the return of Michael Wesson as Hornstock. Yeah, me too, for sure. And I think that sums up Psych as a fun remake. Kind of want to get back, though, to the status quo of the series with dealing with Chief Trout and all that stuff. Can I get some progression next week? Kind of enjoy these kind of fun breakups, though, like the trip to London and this one. But I kind of want to get more focused back on progressing the story and wrapping things up. So hopefully that's going to be next week. Come back to that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Even though this is fun, let's let's stop them experimenting a little bit and do some other things. So with that, we're going to move on to an episode of Revolution. I think it was pretty good. Again, it was a supporting character I think really carried this one, but that's in The Father Gene. And we'll talk about more about that when we get into the episode discussion on Captain Trips. <laughs> Jean decides to help the town of Willoughby, which spurs Rachel and Charlie to do the same. Miles and Monroe work together in an effort to survive. In my opinion, I thought this episode of Revolution, dealing with the plague, started out kind of slow. As it just, it didn't feel like a real threat to the town for the first 20 minutes. But then things got better once Miles and Monroe got involved. Kind of was revealed the Patriots had manufactured the plague to, Willa, to weed out the people of Willowsby 
who did fit their version of a perfect society. Nico, did you feel like this episode was plagued by starting out slow? Guy, okay, what's your thoughts on the Patriots' motive behind infecting people? Yeah, this episode started off way too slow and focused, at least early on, too much on the Neville story arc as well. Okay. Once Miles and Monroe got involved, at least the episode in Willoughby started to get moving, and the episode as a whole improved greatly. As for the manufactured plague, well, that's exactly what I said last week was what was going to turn out to be the case. If I'm not mistaken, it was indeed the Patriots injecting the food supply with a man-made genetically altered, which was probably not traditionally contagious, rickettsia bacteria that was manufactured in a lab somewhere. The motives are the same as what I suggested last week, to make the populace scared and willing to become Patriots themselves and follow the suggestions of the Patriot Command. We also saw in this week's episode that they are weeding out the sick, troublemakers, and those most strategic to cause a panic and the rest of the town to fall in line. A sort of genetic ethnic cleansing of the people of Willoughby, if you will. Yeah, so they're trying to make the Patriots like the Nazis. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, pretty basic motive. I don't know if it's that exciting, but we'll go with it. Right. <laughs> Again, what I'm more interested in, and God, I was disappointed that we only got a little bit of it in this episode, was Aaron's story. Guys, I really think his connection with the Nanites is the most fascinating, kind of well-thought-out aspect of the show right now. And with that, Nico, do you think next week's episode is going to put more of a heavy focus on Aaron? Because I think we're kind of due for it. Were you okay with what little we saw of Aaron in this episode? Dan, I think it was two weeks ago that we discussed at the time that I thought the Aaron story arc was going to be the most interesting story going forward. I still feel that way, and I'm disappointed with how little and how slowly they are progressing that arc. I hope next week is almost exclusively focused on Aaron, because that is where my interest is focused at the moment with this show. The Willoughby part is pretty good as well, but I'm more interested in Aaron and the Nanites, and I'd rather see a lot of that stuff right now. What's what makes the show the most fascinating and interesting, Gajimanichev, is kind of the contrast between this post-apocalyptic world that's converted back to the 1800s, and this crazy advanced technology. Like, that's interesting. It's a great concept, and I think they need to play with that more, rather than dealing with all these people getting reduced back to savagery, that type of thing. Which leads me to Devil's Storyline. Again, I thought it slightly improved this week, with it being a little bit more straightforward. There was a straight goal to what he was doing, because that was basically Devil, because his wife tried to save their son. And the flashbacks explaining how Devil's wife became a master manipulator, I thought were well executed. However, I thought they felt like a retread of the episode that revealed Neville's origin story last season. On that note, I thought Neville and his wife getting separated at the end of the episode was going to lead him on another wild goose chase where my figure would start moving towards that DVR. Fast forward button. But then I was given hope when the preview showed that Neville's storyline is going to supposedly connect with Monroe and Miles next week. Nico, what were your thoughts on Neville's storyline? Did you see any signs of improvement? Dan, I'm still not interested in this arc. Sure, it was more straightforward and the flashbacks were decent, although not entirely consistent with the flashbacks from last season where we saw him become a cunning and vicious killer much earlier. If this arc does indeed meet up with Miles and Monroe next week, then I do believe that it will get better. But as for now, I'm still not impressed. Yeah, just... Okay, that's why I said it slightly got better. Right. But I could sit through it better this time. But other times I'm just like, oh my god, get through this. Go back. Kind of would help if we got more focus on Aaron to balance that out or weed that out. But maybe it'll get better next week. I'm just hoping. Right. Because <laughs> ultimately, after it was all said and done with what stuck out to me the most about this episode, were the scenes between Charlie, Rachel, and Gene after he got sick. 
So I'd say we're probably the best performance we've seen from these characters of the entire season. Okay, with that opinion, I hope the plague doesn't kill off Gene, because Stephen Collins' presence has brought a lot to the table with improving both Charlie and Rachel's characters. Anyway, it seems like something big is going to happen next week, because the trailer promises that it's going to be the episode of Revolution you don't want to miss. Again, this could just be more of NBC's famous false advertising, but I hope that they actually come through on their claim this time, because Revolution is in need of a big push for going on hiatus for the Olympics. It just better not come in the form of Gene's death. Nico, do you think the writers could live up to the claim that next week's Revolution will be an episode you don't want to miss? God, do you think Gene getting killed off will have something to do with it? Dan, I too hope that Gene does not get killed off because I, much like you said, feel that his presence this season, along with improved writing by our favorite Benny Lund, has greatly improved the Rachel and Charlie dynamic. I would hate to see Stephen Collins leave, but if his character Gene does die, then it will need to serve a very important purpose and not only to spark the rebels to rebel again. As for next week, being the one that you don't want to miss, well, I've heard that before and been left thinking WTF was that. Yes, thank you, Grim. I will never trust NBC's promotions department again. They've screwed me too many times. So I'd say watch next week's episode expecting just a normal episode, and maybe we will be surprised by something stupendous, but that way we can't be disappointed by the hype. So I'd say go into it with an open mind and not expecting too much, and you won't be disappointed. But I think it would be great for them to come through on it for Revolution's writers. Because this is kind of a hiatus break for them with the Olympics. Right. So they need to go out strong to get people to come back. Because I feel like they're kind of shaky again right now. Better than season one, but I feel like they're losing people. So we'll see. But there's still so many other good things going on. I hope this Giancarlo Esposito storyline doesn't just push people away. Because it's better than that, and maybe they'll get fixed. So we'll see. Knock on wood on that one. Right. All right. Okay. All right. So now we're going to move on to our sitcom section with a pretty fun episode of How I Met Your Mother that progressed things, I guess, if you thought. I don't know if it was in a positive way, but we'll get into that when we talk about the episode. So let's talk about the episode of How I Met Your Mother, entitled Unpause. After imbibing a bit too much, a woozy Barney spills him long-held secrets to the opportunistic Ted and Robin, while Marshall goes to extreme lengths to dodge a fight with Lily. And here is Woo's thoughts on this episode of How I Met Your Mother. This week's episode is entitled Unpause. It is the 15th episode of the ninth season and the final season of How I Met Your Mother. This was one of my favorite episodes of the series because it touched on a lot of things. First of all, Barney's ability to lie very 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 well and his I loved how they got him to tell the truth because Barney doesn't even realize he told the truth and I've read some studies that there have been instances where people have gotten so hammered that they they go into a comatose state where they tell the truth and they don't even realize what they've done the next morning so it isn't that far-fetched love the truth about the ring bearer and how it may actually be a bear trevor johnson i love that joke i also loved the callback to many many episodes throughout the past nine years and really what barney's job actually is and why he took said job I didn't expect that we would go back to Game Made, the origin of Barney, which is still one of my favorite episodes of High Mother Mother to this day. Loved that they brought that guy Greg back, the guy who slept with Shannon, and the guy who was basically 
responsible, half responsible for turning Barney into Barney. I thought that was very, very good and very, and very surprising and interesting. Um, the main event though to me, and I'll get to the mother and Ted later on, but the main event in the episode to me was Marshall and Lily having their big fight. I loved Marshall's strategy because a lot of guys have d done the same thing. I've known a lot of guys that have thought the same thing. If I get my work tired enough, maybe we won't have to do the fight. I loved how they almost uh, they almost treated it like an MMA fight before the, they got into the fight. They like checked their gloves. They said, "I love you" to each other. And once the bell rang, the the fur was flying. The claws were out. And it's really interesting to think about what Marshall brings up about San Francisco. What if Lily's career took off at the end of season one? What if after she left New York to go to San Francisco, would she have come back? They kind of hinted about it a little bit in season two, but it really wasn't brought to a head until this episode. And it reminded me of that great episode in season seven, or yeah, season I, it was either season seven or season eight. Uh, I'm sorry, it was season eight where Barney, the episode right after Barney and Robin got engaged, where Lily admitted to Ted up on the roof that she kind of resented being a mother, that she kind of resented that her career never took off the way she thought it it was going to, and the fact that you know that her family kind of held her back even though she loves Marvin, she loves Marshall. She always kind of wondered what would have happened if she didn't get married so young, if she didn't fall in love so young. And yeah, it was kind of a low blow by Marshall to bring all that stuff up, but it was all valid and tr truthful things to bring up. And I love the fact that, you know, it looks like Lily took off for Rome and Lily has left Marshall and Marvin behind, and I'm assuming that the car that took Lily away was provided by the captain. Again, great episode. One more thing before we go. I loved how they brought in the mother for this episode. I loved that. I, I didn't expect that. I Every time they jump ahead to see where the mother and Ted's um, relationship is gone. I've been totally satisfied. I loved the reveal of the kids' names. I loved the chemistry once again between Kristen Milioti and Josh Radner. Loved everything about this episode. Really nothing bad to say about it. Five out of five. And I can't believe we are at the 200th episode next week. The entitled How Your Mother Met Me, which kind of dispels the theory of there being a spinoff called How I Met Your Father, but I'll get into that more next week. Let's take it back to Nico and Dan. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. You can follow me up your voice, Bad Woo, the classic season one story where Ted teaches his kids, got myself, that nothing good happens after 2 a.m. It sucked me right into this episode with suspense. But then we got into a story that answered big questions, but also followed this season's pattern of using filler as a means of getting us to the next episode, where the real story development is supposed to take place. On that note, I was amused as a Star Wars fan with Barney getting Jabba drunk, and I thought us getting the burning question to what he does for a living paid off well, because he's the only guy on television who's awesome enough to pull off that type of a rug on his boss 
Okay, get his own console 80 sounding theme song afterwards. Although on the flip side, the huge argument Marshall and Lily had was sort of a conundrum to me, as I could not decide if this was the writers trying to get more mileage out of the story that has long since been resolved, or if they were trying to give a point as to why Ted shared the story of Marshall and Lily's breakup all those years ago. I personally believe that it was the mother who picked up Lily at the end of this episode, and she will ultimately be the one who saves their marriage, because it fits perfectly with Ted's storyline. However, I don't necessarily like this, because I always believed Lily and Marshall would be the couple that inspired Ted to believe he could fall in love. But now, maybe that's Robin and Barney. Anyway, this episode wasn't a total loss, because there was a lot to look forward to, like the name of Ted's daughter, since we discovered in this episode his son's name is Luke, and how everyone is going to react when Barney actually goes through with having a ring bear at his wedding. Nico, what were your thoughts on this week's How I Met Your Mother? This episode was perfectly titled because I felt like it kicked this ninth season up another notch and felt like we had unpaused from a slower episode last week. I have to admit that I really liked the idea of Barney tapping into different levels of drunkenness, even if at first it felt more like a contrived plot device than a genuine character trait. But all that changed when he first got Jabba drunk, I love that, and then Truth Serum drunk. Of course, there were a ton of questions that we wanted answered. The most notable, of course, was what exactly did Barney do for a living? The answer, please, a line that he said so many times and yet never explained, was brilliantly simple and yet perfectly explainable. Provide legal exculpation and sign everything. In other words, a GNB scapegoat that gets paid 16 crap loads a year. Barney's master plan was brilliant as well and a solid payoff for the character's growth he's been going through over the last few seasons. This episode was made especially significant thanks to Barney revealing what he does for a living, as well as one of the most gripping storylines between Marshall and Lily we've seen in years. That's not to mention the fact that we learned Ted's kids' names, Penny and Luke. At least he got one Skywalker name, after all. Oh, I did catch the daughter's name was Penny. Yep. Is that a nod to Big Bang Theory, or what? Uh, I don't think so. I think um, I would hope that if anything, it's a nod to Neil Patrick Harris. Dr. Horrible. Sorry. Yeah, Dr. Horrible. There you go. That's cool. Or Inspector Gadget, if you want to go that way. Or Inspector <laughs> Gadget. But I prefer I prefer the Dr. Horrible. Yeah, for sure. Okay, now let's move on to talking probably about one of the funniest sitcom episodes that aired this week, at least in my opinion. God, this was filled with sidekicks, supporting characters, and you name it. Got some really funny moments. So let's talk now about the New Girl episode. That was just excellent, entitled Birthday. Hey, girl, what you doing? Hey, girl, where you going? Who's that girl? Who's that girl? It's just. As Jess's birthday approaches, Nick plans to throw her the perfect party. Meanwhile, Schmidt helps Cece acclimate to her new bartending job, and Winston and Coach compete in a bake-off. This was another episode where New Girl was at its finest, or I guess funniest, because the concept of celebrating Jesse's birthday got the laughs rolling on all four cylinders, leading me to have a whole list of favorite comedic moments, including Coach's awkward speech about baking his cake moist for the ladies before starting his bake-off with Winston, Jess thinking the birthday party set up in the park was hers, but it really wasn't, got Nick's happy birthday video he played for Jess at the movies with its celebrity cameos, as well as Schmidt giving Jess her birthday wishes in a way that would make Steven Spielberg or Michael Bay proud. 
Nico, what were some of your favorite comedic moments from this excellent episode of New Girl? Did it play out just like your own birthday, which happened this week? You know, Dan, I love the mistake birthday party in the park. The actual party in the theater with that great home video Nick made for her. And I think the funniest thing about Nick's video, Ode to Jess, were the descriptors beneath the names, such as Outside Dave, Neighborhood Color. Yeah. Also, love the Winston mistake cake that read, See you in hell, yes. boomer! Great stuff. The Winston and Coach Bake Off was mildly entertaining, but not not being a reality show or cooking show fan, the whole mocking of the genre didn't do much for me. I know it did for a lot of other people, so I didn't find it as funny as maybe some other people did. Of course, it was the surprise ending, both for Jess and for us as the viewers, that really drove this episode home. The fact that Nick had successfully masterminded a celebration for Jess at the movie theater was nothing short of a home run. And I would say a miracle for Nick. Yes. <laughs> also, Josh Gad's cameo as Bearclaw was a great callback that made me laugh hard. I love that guy. And I loved uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's birthday crown. Yeah. <laughs> That's great stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just glad that it was so successfully done. It, it was good stuff. Yeah, great, great episode. And uh, my sister actually gets very disturbed by the word moist. So that's what made the coach with the bake-off pretty funny because she was watching it with me and they said the word moist and she freaked out. It, it made what coach said a true statement. So that was pretty funny in itself. Okay, with that, we're going to talk about the Modern Family episode. Three dinners. Shorty and his wife Darlene visit the Pritchetts, but Jay isn't thrilled with the news they've come to share. Meanwhile, Phil and Claire's dinner with Haley takes a surprising turn, and Mitchell and Cameron attempt to have a romantic dinner alone without talking about their wedding or Lily, but their evening is filled with lots of awkward silence. This wasn't an episode of Modern Family that delivered big laughs, but it still made me chuckle thanks to my favorite comedic moment, which was Jay giving Shorty a whole KR time about moving to Costa Rica. This was the classic scenario of old men dishing out crap, because they love one another? God, I thought it paid off get a satisfying heart with passion by teaching us that at Jay's age, we should all be lucky to have a loyal friend like Shorty. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? My very comedic moment, although not that funny in itself, but rather because of the actor playing it, was the whole situation with Pete from Warehouse 13, Eddie McClintock's character yes. proposing, getting rejected, and then getting back together with his girlfriend all the while, while Cam and Mitchell making each step of the process worse. It was funny because of its awkwardness. Not what I usually find humorous, but in this case, for whatever reason, made me laugh. God, it was also great to see Eddie McClintock in a solid gig. Oh yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, he's hilarious. And uh, speaking of characters we love and hilarious guys that we love, we're going to talk about those fun guys at Greendale Community College with a community episode that I thought was a very great success. And that's the episode Geothermal Escapism. Abed organizes a going-away activity for Troy, and what starts as a fun game turns into a heated competition. I've got to say that after two paintball episodes, gave pillow fight, got some other things I'm forgetting. I thought community had run out of things to do for a campus-wide game episode. But I guess the classic game we played as kids, Hot Lava, works. Especially when it turned Troy's son off. Get to a spoof on Kevin Costner's Waterworld. Okay, movie so ridiculous in itself that it's ripe for parody. I made choosing my favorite comedic moment easy this week, because I thought the whole concept was hilarious from the game getting out of hand to see Troy and Abed in a bubble. 
Giles at that level world made a great metaphor to the conflict that Ahmed was facing with Troy leaving. And as for Troy actually saying goodbye, I can't think of a better way for the character to go out than him getting towed away on Pierce's ship with LeVar Burton as the navigator got this song, Come Sail Away, playing in the background. This was great stuff, but maybe a little sad inside because our little Troy has flown to Greendale Nest to go around reading books to children with LeVar Burton. Come on, guys. With the bar bird making all these appearances. I community of Big Bang Theory. Someone needs to make a reading rainbow reference somewhere. So with that, let's take a look inside a book. Can hear Nico's favorite comedic moments from this week's really fun episode of Community. Dan, this episode was another campus-wide game gem that only a show helmed by Dan Harmon could pull off. And pull it off, he did. I thought this week's episode was once again the best of the season and far exceeded anything from last season. So some of my favorite comedic moments from this week's great episode included Troy and Abed in a bubble, Pierce's ship being named the Childish Tycoon, and Chang's celebrity same-sex crush being Nathan Fillon, because that'd probably be one of mine as well. Yeah, well, just how they made fun of the movie Waterworld was just outstanding. Good stuff. Well, the movie, I think Waterworld is kind of a silly movie. Some of the concepts and stuff is kind of goofy. And so I was just like, hey, thank you. Someone is commenting on this. Good. So that was great. Thank you, Dan Herman. And with that, about Chang's same celebrity crush being Nathan Fillon, is that foreshadowing that maybe an awkward relationship between Chang and a certain janitor is coming to the show very soon? I certainly hope so. I had almost forgotten that Nathan was going to be making an appearance on the show as a Greendale janitor, but this, if it is indeed the plot of his appearance, would be amazing. I would love to see Ken Jeong and Nathan Fillon play off each other and see just how much trouble those two can get into in an episode. I can't wait for his appearance because I know it's going to be great. Well, Nathan Fillon and Ken Jeong, I mean, they're both people that have the habit of cracking me up. So that could be really fun. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So that's something for us to look forward to. Even though really every episode this season has been great and almost better than the last one. Yeah, it, it really has. This one was the best so far, but that's just because it's the most recent. And also, I read in an article that things are looking good for maybe community getting that season six. Oh, wow. Parks and Rec got renewed, and they said, it looks promising we might get a season six. Because it's doing better than their sitcoms at 8 and 8.30. So that's something interesting there. Yeah. So keep your fingers crossed, folks. Yep. All right, with that, I think it's about time we jump into the Airwaves Rundown section. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's Pulp from Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know trauma. Yeah. We're going to kick off the rundown section this week, as we did last week, with Justified, with the episode Good Intentions. See them Rayleigh takes over a mansion once run by a mob account. Poor Dewey Crow. Dude hits the jackpot. I mean, he kind of deserved it, but let's ignore that for a second. Then he gets a huge cash settlement and gets robbed on both ends. All he wants is an endless supply of prostitutes. Is that so much to ask? Apparently in Harlan County, yes it is. This week's episode, Good Intentions, was all about cousins. The season-long friction rolled out, revealing a Boyd Crowder versus Cousin Daryl fight for power of the lower tiers of crime in Harlan County. Dewey Crow is caught in the middle of it as both Boyd and Daryl are good manipulators and Cousin Daryl won his heart and mind by the end of the episode when it was revealed that good old Wade had been skimming off the top for Boyd. Meanwhile, Cousin Johnny Crowder has returned and was behind Boyd's botched deals. 
It could have been almost anybody on the other end of that line, but Johnny was a nice touch. Boyd seems to have turned into quite the silver-tongued crime boss in Harlan County, and as he struggles to grasp the power from Lee Paxton, his lower infrastructure begins to crumble. This is light years more interesting than where we started this season, and maybe one of the most interesting series arcs yet. This week's episode gave us a much greater idea of where the season is going and proved to be a good conduit episode for the season. It wasn't thrilling or massively entertaining, but it was very neat and tidy. It maintained the season's status and threw in a couple of good twists and turns along the way. Where they're going with Raylan and Allison is still up for grabs, but this episode had some fun with it. Allison is coming along nicely as a character, and the ties within the episode to the already happening arcs of the house safe and the ex-con of whom Allison had a history with was perfectly crafted without a single detail out of place. It was clean, clever writing, and there's more to come from that. Whether or not Allison is good or bad is a fun idea to play with since she's more or less a blank page right now, for us anyway, that is. I'm sure the writers have a good idea of what they're doing with her. But Amy Smart is just the type of good old girl-next-door actress that can pull off that balance. A little pot use, even in front of Raylan, isn't exactly conniving, even if it is a little, oh, casual. But to think she's nefarious enough to plant meth is enough to make her intentions questionable. If that's the case, is she really that much better than Raylan? Could she be conning him like last season's love interest? Probably not. They're not going to repeat that exactly. But the question of her motives are enough to keep us interested, and the possibility that she is up to no good remains one of the most interesting subplots of the season so far. Speaking of which, the arc on Raylan this season seems to be a casual disregard of rules mixed with a lot of violence. His speech last week about the badge making it legal is a slight nod toward the direction where this season is going and the use of a baseball bat and leading an admitted enforcer toward Win Duffy as a honeypot seems to confirm this. Whether this is enough to kick Raylan out of the marshals or just enough to skim the troubled waters is going to be fun to watch. This week's episode, Good Intentions, won't be a particularly memorable episode, but it does line up with the rest of the series and provided a neat and tidy motivation for the season. That's what's needed right now. Things are moving, pieces are starting to get into place, and we're getting what we want. It's all looking good right now. Alright, another good episode of Justified. Just loving where this fifth season is going. Now we're going to move to Friday Night's comedy section with the newly upgraded show enlisted in its new time slot with the episode Prank War. Derek starts a prank war that tests the Hill Brothers' skills. Actually, this week's episode ended up being Pete's Airstream instead of Prank War as scheduled. Not sure why the change of episode order, but Prank War is now scheduled for some time later in the series' run. This week's episode was a letdown after the first two were so great. Instead of being a prank war, which I'm sure would have been really exciting and fun and hilarious, this week's episode seemed to deal with Pete's possible lingering PTSD and his need for solitude. While this would be an interesting and important topic in a drama, it was less successful in the military comedy genre. That being said, the sinkhole seminar with Pete's motto crashing into the hole was a nice touch, as was the lone wolf gag when Sergeant Perez's troops mockingly howled at her for her drunken escapades. Also, this episode all but confirms that Randy is my favorite character, and his naked hugs, uninvited shower crashing, and excessive brotherly love save this episode comically. Not a terrible episode, but just not as funny as the first two. Alright, now we're going to move into the more dramatic aspect of Friday Night with Grimm and the episode The Wild Hunt. Well, Nick and Hank investigate a killer who takes 
his victim's scalps. Adeline unexpectedly goes into labor. Can Juliet maintains contact with Nick's mom? Meanwhile, Monroe gets a visit from his parents. Well, that went badly for everyone. Of course, that's not the same as saying the episode was bad. It's more that it was a general lack of dire straits at the end of the mid-season finale, trying to be compensated for here with a cliffhanger intended to set us up for our Olympics-required finale this week. Adeline is in labor, I, I, I think, and Monroe and Rosalie's engagement has been nothing but a suck fest for the entire 20 minutes of its existence, and oh, Monroe flung himself between his attacking parents and a totally unprepared to fight with some Vessin in-laws, Nick. Can I just say, Monroe's parents are dicks? But at the same time, Monroe's parents are at the center of one of the more interesting stories Grimm has going for it right now. The first half of the series featured several episodes that tackled the cultural problems that plagued modern Vessen families, particularly One Night Stand and A Dish Best Served Cold. Vessen are just as diverse and complicated as boring old humans, with the same hang-ups and vices and occasional bouts of ass-backwards thinking. This week's episode, The Wild Hunt, didn't delve too deeply into Monroe's parents' rationale for being so startlingly anti-Monroe and Rosalie, and for all we know, there could be a somewhat valid reason for their stance. I mean, didn't Monroe and Rosalie touch on the biological issues between Fuchsbau and Bootbod a while ago? Something like back in Season 2, maybe? I don't know. For a season that has reveled in contrasting the Vesson world with the human world and the modern Vesson world with the traditional one, I'm really glad Grimm decided to bring one of our main couples into the forefront of that storyline. At the end of the day, I fall into Monroe's mindset where it really is none of mom and dad's business, but in the meantime, exploring Vesson culture and family dynamics on such a personal level has the potential to be a really great story. Meanwhile in Vienna, Adeline is already in labor, complete with creepy CGI monster faces pressing against the skin of her uterus and tiny little monster hands trying, getting ready to claw its way out. Throughout this pregnancy, I've been assuming that all the weird stuff happening was because Adeline's little bundle of joy is Vesson, but I'm really starting to consider that maybe Adeline and Stefani did something to it during all their hocus pocus antics earlier in the season trying to get Adeline's powers back. Stefani just seems way too delighted by Adeline's current situation. My spidey sense started tingling. This week's episode dealt with a Vesson with a bad attitude and a problem with men in uniform who was scalping cops, marines, and other authority figures and racked up nearly 30 victims. Nick and Hank began fumbling their way through the case, which has yet to really pick up any steam and is effectively on hold until February 28th when our next new episode of Grimm hits the airwaves. Now, I love the Olympics, but that is a damn long time to wait for more Grimm. P.S. I've got to admit, Juliet's argument with Nick about why she should be allowed to email Nick's mom made sense. Better to keep her in the fold than let her turn into a boring old damsel again. I'm just saying. Some good spots of this episode, some not so great. So it was kind of a so-so episode of Grimm. Now we're going to talk about a new series that's showing on Stars, a pirate series entitled Black Sails, with the first episode one. While facing threats on all sides, including a possible mutiny, pirate Captain Flint hires a young sailor named John Silver, who comes across the highly sought after item. Meanwhile, as the Royal Navy gets ever more powerful, Kalidor keeps order on New Providence. In a bold attempt to revitalize the pirate genre after Captain Jack Sparrow, Stars invites us all to experience the down-and-dirty, gross-and-grimy world of pirates with black sails, created by John Steinberg, who also did Human Target in Jericho, and Robert Levine, which debuted this Saturday. 
This new series, executive produced by Michael Bay, yes, that Michael Bay, stands on its own quite confidently while also offering up a treat for fans of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, as it essentially a rugged, violent, cutthroat dramatization of the backstory of that famed novel. So Captain Flint, legendary captain of the walrus, is very much alive, and John Silver is neither long nor peg-legged. Unfortunately, as a double-edged scabbard, the pirate world that Stevenson created, which every pirate project since, all the way up to Assassin's Creed 4, owes its lifeblood to, has become almost commonplace. The curse of introducing an entire lexicon, way of dress, and code of conduct to a storytelling world is that by the time you get back around to revisiting them, they've become tropes. So much so that I felt like I was watching a dramatization of the Assassin's Creed 4 game that I'm currently playing. Now, on the bright side, Black Sails relies mostly on its story to suck you in, and instead of being annoyingly cutesy and over-expository about its world like some series, Black Sails chooses to nest comfortably within its own skin, knowing its audience well enough to realize they've seen a lot of this dressing before. That being said, this is a pilot or a premiere, so there were a few moments of clumsy introduction. But overall, Black Sails' strength lies within both its authenticity and its confidence not to be too showy about its authenticity. With this comes the premium cable-mandated amount of blood and sex, which is usually ramped up even more on Stars. Stars loves the boobies. But here the story shines brighter than the exploitation, which even seems tame when you consider the combo of stars and pirates and what could have been. However, director Neil Marshall adeptly gives the action an urgent edge and the drama a stern tone. Within this hour-long premiere, there was a hearty dose of raiding, backstabbing, and intrigue as Captain Flint takes a huge risk endangering his own standing with his crew by trying to track down a Spanish treasure galleon. I got a kick out of seeing Flint, a young, somewhat conniving John Silver, and Billy Bones, along with real-life female buccaneer Anne Bonny. In the end, Black Sails doesn't reinvent the plank, but the fact that its core story helped invent the plank in the first place gives it a swagger of self-assuredness and authenticity that allows it to sidestep several pitfalls. It's not as poetic in its dialogue as something like Game of Thrones, but it contains enough brash, bright characters who are gifted with a solid stance and motivations, and I think the fact that Black Sails seems to be setting out to tell a more grounded story helps the show a great deal. However, you're not going to see anything you haven't seen before. It's well-traveled territory, so if you're expecting something to rival Game of Thrones, you might be let down. I think this is going to be a good series, and I'm going to continue to watch it. We'll see where it goes in the next couple to see if it's going to be a great series. Good stuff. All right, with that, we'd normally jump into the voicemail section, but we played the voicemail this week in the How I Met Your Mother, so we're going to just go ahead and, I think, move in to the closing. Yeah, let's close things up. Okay, with that, we're going to hand things over to my sidekick and partner in crime. That's a part of this week's celebration. So tell us what's coming down the pipe next week. Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover the return of TV as we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on intelligence, the following with Andy, Supernatural, Psych, and Revolution, plus our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, Community, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Justified, Elementary, Enlisted, 
and black sales, and maybe even a few more things. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. For sure. And until our next podcast, you can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, and that is a podcast hosted by Michael and Wu, and it covers a variety of topics in the entertainment industry. Basically, they just pick a topic they want to talk about, and basically focus on that for an entire episode. So if you want a story, a more focused podcast on one thing, check out It's Tangent time also coming back now since michael has returned safe safe and sound from his trip to israel is the across the airwaves dc nation podcast which covers all the imaginative content dc comics provides for its fans most notably the forever evil story arc that's going on now in dc comics as well as smallville season 11 comics and coming soon beware the batman when that show supposedly comes back on in january if that works out so for anything dc related check out the dc nation podcast also, we've got the Helicarrier podcast, which is hosted by Andy Babacht, and that covers individual episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So if you're a fan of that show and want more detailed reviews on that particular show, check out the Helicarrier podcast, hosted by Andy, and actually myself for the time being. And also, coming back from hiatus, because ATA Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is a podcast dedicated to focusing on individual episodes of the hit CWTV series, Arrow. So if you like that show, check out Michael and Wu's coverage on it that airs on a weekly basis. Got their next episode is going to be cover, covering the mid-season premiere as well as the episode following that. So they're going to double up this week due to Michael's trips to Israel. Also, if you'd like, you could contact our podcast in a variety of ways by visiting our new and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. That's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. And also, you can like us on Facebook. Get through liking us on Facebook, you can stay updated on all of our podcast episode releases and follow all the movie and TV news that Nico and our other podcast members come report on come during the week. And for that same content, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the Airwaves. There's no the there, it's just Across the Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like to share your favorite moments for many of the shows we cover, or want to share your opinions on them, or want to suggest another show that we should be covering, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. We also have a YouTube channel featuring all sorts of previews for upcoming movies, including Captain America the Winter Soldier, X-Men Days of Future Past, RoboCop, got a whole lot more. So check out our YouTube channel for previews for upcoming films, especially the big ones coming out this summer. God, look for a Guardians of the Galaxy trailer on our YouTube channel when that finally is released, and I'm anxious to see a trailer for that film, because it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast, for all the ways you can contact us, you can download our Podcast Box app, which will let you listen to our podcast on an iPad or iPhone. You can also stay in contact with our podcast through that app as well. And if you are on an Android or Windows device, you can download our Android app, which is available through the Amazon Marketplace. Also, ATA is an affiliate of the iTunes Store. So if you click any of the buttons located on our website that says Download on iTunes, if you click that, all of the purchases you make within the iTunes store over the next three days will go towards helping supporting ATA. So if you want to purchase something kind of iTunes, we ask you if you could go through that route so it will help out ATA to keep our podcast on the air. So with that, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babacht, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstack. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. And if you have a sidekick out there, give them a pat on the back and thank them for a job well done. See you guys. Thanks for joining our celebration. Just a sidekick 
but I love being at your side. Been in the shadows for far too long But I'm the leading man of this song I was a stupid doofus but now that's gone I'm ready for a change, gonna keep coming, carry on I know I'm not a pretty boy but I'm a man I'll find a way to save your baby, yes I can Don't confuse the way I was with the way I am Change gonna take a stand I'm just a sidekick Oh yes, I'm just a sidekick Oh yeah, I'm just a sidekick But I love being at your side Jeffster lives, man! We now return to our regularly scheduled program.